Peter gets mysterious. Now, elsewhere, elsewhere in uh, Peter, he talks about Paul's epistles sometimes being somewhat hard to understand. Well, he's one to talk, isn't he? Um, some of Paul's letters are difficult to understand. Uh, Paul's writing style, for example, he will often put in, uh, he'll start a sentence and then he'll go off on a bit of a tangent. You'll see that in uh, Galatians and Ephesians particularly. He does, well, Romans too. He will do that. He'll start a thought and then he'll kind of veer off and then he'll come back to it again. So there are things in Paul's letters that are somewhat difficult to understand, but uh, I don't think any of them is as difficult or as challenging as uh, verses uh, 19 and, well, through 21. Verses 19 and 20 speaks about the spirits that are in prison, so we have to identify who the spirits in prison are. And uh, verse 21 speaks about or it appears to speak about at first, baptism saving us. And uh, that's kind of weird. Does baptism really save a soul? Does all you have to do is get immersed and uh, God forgives your sins? So we have to tackle that one as well. I will tell you that there is some connection in all of this. There's a kind of a logical flow. It's just that what Peter chooses to speak about is different, is uh, unusual. But uh, there is a connection between all of the parts of this passage. It starts out clear enough and easy enough in verse 18, where he speaks about Christ's work, the just for the unjust. Christ also suffered once for sins. Remember, he's been talking here about suffering, hasn't he? He's been talking about Christians undergoing persecution, being able to give an answer to people that asks them of the hope that's within them with meekness and fear. That's in verse 15. But Christ, of course, also suffered. But he suffered as a just man, as a righteous man, as a sinless man for us who are unjust, unrighteous, and sinners. So there is a big difference between Christ's suffering and our suffering. We can be innocent sufferers in the sense that uh, we may suffer for things that we, you know, we didn't do and that we're not guilty of. We understand that. And yet, suffering is part of the curse. It's part of sin being in the world. And us being in the world means that we only add to that sin. We have to understand that, that we sin as we live and breathe in the world. Now, it's not for people who are born again, people who are... Christians and who who have received the Holy Spirit, it is not the habit of their lives to live in rebellion and sin. Whereas in the world, because people, even if they are quote-unquote good people out there, because their worldview does not include the God who made them, 
And because their sins have not been forgiven through Jesus Christ, then everything that they do, even their good deeds, are considered to be wicked and evil by God. Why? Because they're done not for God, not in acknowledgement of God, but for themselves. And therefore, the motive is all wrong. And if your motive is wrong, then you are wrong. And anything that you do is wrong. Do you see? So Christ, Christ's motives were always right. They were always true and good. Christ's motives for coming into the world were to save us from our sins. And that involved suffering. That involved humiliation. That involved the suffering even of the cross, which was the worst, considered to be the worst punishment of the ancient world. So he, the just, dying for us, the unjust. Why? Well, it continues in verse 18, that he might bring us to God. We can't be brought to God in the sense of being reconciled to God if we have not received Jesus Christ as our Savior. If we've not been saved from our sins, then the only way that we can be brought before God is to be arraigned as before a judge to be condemned. Christ died for us, therefore, verse 18, that he might bring us to God as reconciled to God so that we meet God not as a judge, but we meet God as our Father because he's adopted us into his family, because he's received us, he's accepted us in the beloved, his son, Jesus Christ. You see, this is the good news, folks. Don't, don't please uh, turn off here. It's so important that we understand that our good works, our good deeds, our good thoughts, our good intentions, whatever good we think we may have, that these count for nothing, absolutely nothing, before God. If we are counting on them to seek God's approval for our lives. What is it that God approves of? What is it that God accepts? He accepts us when we accept his son Jesus dying in our place, taking our sins upon him. And on those grounds, the judge can forgive us of our sins. And he can welcome us when we are brought before him. But look at the cost, the end of verse 18. Being put to death in the flesh. Christ had to meet death. We all meet it. We all meet it because of sin. Christ did not sin. And yet he had to meet death so that he could defeat death for you and I. 
Now, folks, we know people who have passed on, who have, their bodies have died. But they did not die. They did not perish. They are right now with Christ in glory. As the Apostle Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so those loved ones and those saints that have gone on before us, they are right now present in heaven with God as citizens of heaven, enjoying their renewed and forgiven lives. Why? Because they have Christ's righteousness upon them, and that gives them a right to heaven. The passage goes on and says, he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit regenerated him. The Holy Spirit made it possible for his body to be raised from the dead and glorified. Christ, when he humiliated himself by becoming a human being, lived by the power of the Holy Spirit, lived in reliance on the Holy Spirit. That's how he can be an example to us. He didn't use his own authority, his own prerogatives as God. He lived in faith in the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, certainly, the Holy Spirit was given to him without measure. The Holy Spirit is not given to us without measure. But we still have the Holy Spirit, and we can choose to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. I know it's hard, but we can do that. And Christ is our example in doing that. So verse 18 is one of the greatest verses in the entire Bible about how a saint is justified. The just for the unjust. Do you see yourself as unjust? That's to see yourself in a negative light. You know, it really helps to see yourself in a negative light, particularly when we're talking about God. Because if we see ourselves in a negative light, if we see ourselves as sinners, as unjust before God, then we're in a perfect position to accept what God has to offer in the gospel, which is forgiveness for those sins, which is reconciliation. So there's verse 18. Starts off this passage okay, doesn't he, Peter? But then what? Then he speaks in verse 19 about these spirits in prison. And it's part of the same sentence, so it's part of the same thought. So I'll start in verse 18 and I'll read verse 19 for you. For Christ also suffered once for sins and the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit, by whom, that's the Spirit, also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Okay, so what's this? A bunch of ghouls in a uh, cell, in a dungeon somewhere? 
No. This prison is not an earthly prison. These spirits are particular individuals who once inhabited this earth and were put in prison by God. Their souls were put in prison. Their bodies have died, but their souls were put in prison. It's a particular group of uh, persons. Who are they? Well, it says, who formerly were disobedient. Well, that's not surprising. That's why they ended up in that, uh, that predicament. When once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. So we have to go all the way back to the days of Noah. Before the flood. To identify these spirits. To identify who these are. While the ark was being prepared. So during those days. (coughs) Now we know that the ark was a big vessel. But only eight human lives were saved through the ark. Who then are these spirits that are in prison? Peter seems to take it for granted that we know. So I think that we ought to go back to that passage and we'll go back to Genesis chapter 6 and see if we can't get an idea of who they are. So Genesis chapter 6. It's one of the most interesting chapters actually in the Bible. And again, Genesis 6 is somewhat mysterious. And I have to go kind of quickly here. In a study, I could take a long time with this, but uh, not this morning. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 1. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth that the daughters were born to them and that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, notice the contrast there, sons of God, daughters of men, that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. This is back before the flood. There were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that he, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Well, how did the Lord decide he was going to destroy man and beast from the face of the earth? What did he use? 
He used the flood. That's right. He used the flood to do that. So you can see the context. Peter has taken us back to Noah and the preparation of the ark before the flood came. So we're in the right ballpark here as far as trying to identify these spirits in prison. Who might these spirits in prison be? Well, they are either all of mankind that was destroyed in the waters of the flood because of their evil, or it is these quote-unquote sons of God who seem to be a kind of major cause of all of the trouble. Who on earth are these sons of God? Well, evangelical scholars have, uh, well, for a long time anyway, tried to get around the obvious here. Okay? They tried to say that the sons of God who came to the daughters of men were not angels, were not supernatural beings, but were just Canaanites, just people, you know, just the, the bad bunch from across the railway tracks there. Okay? They came in and they saw that, uh, oh, the girls over here are prettier. Okay? So we'll just go over there and, uh, you know, we will take wives for ourselves with them. That is not what the passage says. And you know who uh, the, the Bible scholars who said, no, evangelicals, you're wrong. That is not what the Bible is saying. Do you know who they were that were saying that? The liberal scholars. The unbelieving Bible scholars were saying, you evangelicals are not taking the Bible seriously because you're embarrassed by what it's saying. We don't believe it, but we know what it's saying. You see, there is a particular Hebrew term, and it's Beneha Elohim that's used. It's used here, and it's used in only one other place, one other book in the Old Testament, and that's the book of Job. There was a day when the sons of God came before God, and Satan came with them. Well, who are the sons of God? Cainites? They're not Cainites. The Beneha Elohim are angels. They're demonic, actually. They're demonic. Before the flood, there was a some sort form of cohabitation between fallen angels, demonic angels, and human beings. Folks, that's what it says. And now evangelicals have come around and said, yeah, that is what it says, actually. It's so, it's so embarrassing that evangelicals are so fixed on what liberals think. Okay, that when the liberals give the nod to it, the evangelicals say, okay, that's all right instead of just believing what the Bible said in the first place. I don't know about you, but uh, when a man and a woman uh, consummate a marriage, you don't get a giant out of it. Okay? 
You might get a six-footer or a seven-footer. Okay? These are, we're not talking a six or seven-footer here. These giants, and I don't have time to go into it, they really are giants. The sons of Anak, for example, whom the, uh, the spies went in and saw, he said, they, we are like grasshoppers in their sight. Just looking up, look up on the internet, there are all kinds of legends about giants in the world. So them may be far-fetched. But Goliath was a good 12 feet tall, according to the Bible. Okay? We're not talking here about a basketball player, okay? So, going back to 1 Peter chapter 3, the spirits, I believe, that are in prison are these demonic powers that came and cohabited with women. Earth has a very murky past. You say, well, angels can't cohabit with women. Oh, yeah, where would you get that from? Oh, I got it from Jesus because it says, you know, when uh, uh, is there marriage in heaven? Neither, you know, they'll be like the angels of heaven, not marrying. Okay, so just because you're not married, does it mean you cannot conceive? Does it mean that you cannot procreate? Of course not. You see, we read things into the scriptures that aren't there. Folks, every angel that appears in the Bible appears as a man. Okay? Every angel that appears in the Bible appears as a man. We know there are living creatures, there are cherubim and so on, they're kind of weirder things. But angels appear as men. Gabriel, Michael, okay? You didn't have to ask them their gender and their pronouns. They were men. So that's who these spirits are that are in prison, who were disobedient in the days before the flood. Before the flood, you know, people say, well, why did God bring the flood upon the earth? Are you starting to see now? how wicked it must have been. And so Christ is said in verse 19 to go and preach to these spirits in prison. Well, if they're demonic and they came down to try and corrupt the human seed in the days of Genesis, it makes sense. It makes sense that Christ, who became a human being, preached to them. And this is not preaching the gospel to them, saying, hey, you can be saved now because I've died for your sins. No, it's not that. It's preaching condemnation to them. It's preaching Christ's justification to them. In other words, look, I'm here. I've already died. I've already won the victory that you tried to mess up. I've already done it. And you are justly condemned. Do 
just as well as everybody who listens to Satan. Whether in person, like these, or whether deceived by their own lusts. And so Christ, you see, by his death and by his resurrection, by his being made alive by the Spirit here, goes and preaches to those that tried to destroy God's plan in the first place. Okay, there's the first odd passage. What about verse 21? There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. Wait a minute, Peter. Wait a minute. We know that a person who trusts in baptism for eternal life will only get wet. They will not get forgiveness. The good news is not baptism saves you. The the, the good news is Jesus Christ died on the cross to save you. So what is... What is Peter referring to here? It's a a kind of a a difficult verse, but there are ways of of, uh, navigating it. So let's have a look. First of all, he speaks of an antitype. Now, an antitype is the thing that a type points to. Okay? You have a type of something. You might say that the ark, okay, is a type of Christ in a sense that those who were in the ark, were saved. Yes? So you had to be in the ark in order to be saved. Yes? So that's the type and Christ would be the anti-type. Okay? Well, baptism signifies, according to Scripture, our identification with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, just what has been spoken about in verse 18. Okay, we die, as the, you know, the, the signification is that when someone goes down in the baptismal waters, they have died to their own self. When they come up, they, it's a notification that they have risen to newness of life. That's already been done in them by the Holy Spirit, but it is a witness, it's a testimony of the change that has come about. It testifies to them. It testifies to God. It testifies to the devil. It testifies to everyone that's onlooking. I understand what I have done by trusting Jesus Christ. Now, in the ancient world, a person who trusted in Jesus would get baptized by immersion or at least a fusion, and have it poured on them, If uh, a, b- a bit of both. They had to stand in the water and have it poured on them. And so Peter's just taking this for granted, that people are baptized, and therefore there's this connection between uh, them believing in Jesus and being saved and them getting uh, baptized in obedience to Christ. But notice what he says that baptism is not, in verse 21. Baptism is not 
the removal of the filth of the flesh. So it is not something, you, you don't get, you don't get baptized first of all because you want a bath. Okay? I mean, just go down there and, and, and bathe yourself. If you're in the ancient world, go down to the river. You don't need someone to do it for you. You're grown up. Yeah? So obviously he's not talking about that, is he? He's not talking about just removing dirt from the body. Okay? That would be silly. That's not what baptism is. So what's the filth? What is the filth? And what's the flesh that he's talking about here? He's talking about sin, isn't he? He's talking about the sin nature. That's something that only Jesus can do. The just for the unjust, yes? Verse 18. And baptism cannot do that. Baptism cannot remove sin from you. But it can signify that you know that by trusting in Jesus, you've had sin removed and forgiven. Now, in that sense, you see, being, baptism signifies that you're in Christ just as Noah was in the ark and outside is destruction. Outside is judgment. The unjust. Now, do you see the connection? It is not the putting away of filth of the flesh, but rather the answer of a good conscience toward God. Well, look at verse 16. Verse 16 tells us that we are to have a good conscience. And I spoke about conscience last week. It's important to have a good conscience before God and man. So Peter, you see, he has all of these elements in in his mind as he's writing. He's spoken about a good conscience. He's spoken about uh, Christ's suffering. You're going to find that in verse 18, where he speaks about being made alive by the Spirit, he's going to return to that in verse 22. So there is a logic to this. You see, salvation in Jesus Christ, the gospel message, is all about having a good conscience before God, being able to answer God. So there used to be this, uh, this uh, question that people asked. I think it was a great question, which is, uh, you know, when you get to heaven and stand before God and he says, why should I let you into heaven what answer would you give? What is your answer? Oh, I've been a good person. Wrong answer. You're out of heaven. It's because of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Okay? His righteousness has been reckoned to me, imputed to me. I don't have any of my own, but there's been a substitution made. And that satisfies your your justice. You see, a person who's received Jesus Christ can in good conscience respond to God and say, 
because of your son. You see, the attention is on Jesus, not on yourself. Because of your son. And therefore, you see, we can have a good conscience before toward God. Do you have a good conscience toward God? I mean, in this matter of salvation, if you were asked that question, if you were to stand before God to give an account, okay, and God, let's, I'm kind of dramatizing it somewhat, but God, you know, could knew everything about your life, knew everything about your thoughts, everything about your deeds. And he also knew whether you were trusting in Jesus or not. What answer would you give? You've got to, you have got to be able to give that answer before you die. You've got to be able to give that answer now. And the answer, the only answer that God will accept is because I believed wholly in your son and what he did in my place. So, verse 21, you see, talks about baptism And then it continues, if we take out the middle portion in the parentheses, it speaks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, because it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our being connected to the resurrection, our being connected by union with Christ through um, the Holy Spirit. We are connected to his risen life. If you want to know why your eternal life is guaranteed, it's because it's connected to the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has defeated death. So if you're connected to the resurrection, you've defeated death. Your body's going to die, but you know, it got to be replaced anyway. You've got to get a new one anyway. But your soul, your spirit is safe. And so that's what baptism signifies. Okay, so having been through that, a a wonderful, beautiful opening verse that talks about justification of the sinner, then speaking about Christ, Christ's justification going as a human, risen human, going and preaching to these people who try to destroy the whole uh, plan of God at the beginning Boy, were they in for a shock eh? when he showed up there as the risen savior of mankind. And then baptism, which because Peter had spoken about the times of Noah, he's reminded of Noah and the ark, so that reminds him of baptism. You see, he's he's kind of uh, following a chain of thought here which signifies what he's been talking about in verse 18. Now he comes back in verse 22 
to where he was. Who has gone into heaven, this is Christ, the risen Christ, and is at the right hand of God. That is where he is now, at the right hand of God. To be at the right hand of God is to be at the hand of power. It is to be the, uh, the hand of trust, the place of trust, absolute trust. Now, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. And there is his position of mediation right at the right hand of God. Jesus, by the way, is not reigning now. He's not on the throne now. He's at the right hand of the throne of God. When he comes back, he's going to reign. Right now, yes, he's the head of the church. Right now, yes, all authority in heaven and earth is being given to him. But he is not on the Davidic throne right now, and he's not reigning on the earth right now, if you hadn't noticed. But notice what it says here. He's at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Now, the angels that uh, in Jude, Jude talks about these angels, the angels that did not keep their first estate, they were not subject to him. And they fell. But all the angels of heaven now are subject to to Jesus, all the authorities, all the powers. It's kind of like Joseph. You know, Joseph was given all of the power in Egypt apart from, he said, uh, uh, Pharaoh said to him, except for in the throne. Except for in the throne. I will be above you. But everything else in Egypt, Joseph had power over. And this is the position of Jesus right now. God the Father is on the throne. Jesus is at the right hand. He has power over all things on this earth. It's good to know that, folks. In this crazy, insane world, it's good to know that when we're praying about Proposition 1 and its evil, its wickedness. That even if it goes through, that those babies, those unfortunates, will be carried to heaven. Whereas those who have condemned them to an early death must face God and the consequences of their actions. So heaven is a place that is guaranteed by the sufferings and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and by the fact that he now sits at the right hand of God intermediating, is that the right word? No. Mediating. Mediating for us, on our behalf, at the throne of the Father. Folks, your salvation is secure. It's secure because of what Jesus has done and is doing. We don't need an intermediary to come between him and God the Father. We don't need an intermediary to come between us and Jesus and the Father. There's no room there for a fourth person. 
It's been set up. It's been perfected. And the good news is that as mysterious as some of the Bible is, as mysterious as salvation is in some of its components, the good news is very clear. And you sit here in front of me, I hope all of you, as people who identify with what Jesus Christ has done. And if you don't, I don't judge you. I hope nobody here would judge you. My goodness, we've been in the same place. But it is time to come to Jesus. It is time to leave your sins at the cross. It's time to confess to God that you are a helpless sinner condemned by the justice of God and to accept God's offer of salvation through Jesus. Once you do that, you receive the Holy Spirit. Once you do that, you are adopted into God's family. You are taken out of Adam and you put into Christ that saving ark of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will comfort us and encourage us through this message. There are strange things, Father, that have to be done. Things in the spiritual realm. Things uh, that involve the cosmic drama between you and the serpent. And some of these things are not completely divulged to us, Father. But we understand. We understand that this is the battleground. We understand that human souls are at stake. And so I pray, Father, that all here will turn to Jesus as their Lord and their Savior, understanding completely what he did for them and having confidence because they have a clear conscience toward you, having confidence that the victory is won. Thank you, Lord. We acknowledge you. We bless you because you are our Savior. Through Jesus, amen.